I wanted to start things off with something that I know that we all understand is true. Uh, it's something we wish wasn't true, but yet even though we know it's true, we're still a bit surprised by it every time it proves to be true in our own lives. Let me say that one more time. I wanna start with something that we all know is true. We wish it wasn't true, but even though we know it's true, we're a bit surprised by it every single time it proves to be true in my life and yours. And, and here's the truth, life is painful. And we all know that's true. We wish it wasn't true. And for some peculiar reason, we are all a bit shocked and surprised every time this proves to be, you know, proves to be true in my life or your life. But life is painful and, and we don't like to think about it. And we certainly don't wanna like you know, start the sermon off on the 4th of July with it, but, but it's just one of those facts of life. Life is painful. And, and here, here's something really uncomfortable to think about. You can't outsmart the pain that comes along with life. You can't outsmart it, you can't outrun it. Uh, you can't close yourself off to it because the pain that comes along with life, it will pry itself in some way, somehow. And, and for Christians, it's really important to know, people of faith, you can't pray away the pain that comes along with life because life is inescapably painful. And we know this is true. And here's some more unpolished truth for us all. Uh, not only is life painful, but sometimes life is really painful. And on occasion, sometimes life is excruciatingly painful. And that's true for you, and it's true for me, and it's true for us, and it's true for Christians, and it's true for non-Christians, it's true for believers, it's true for people in the West, it's true for people who live in the East. And as we look around, we know this, we see this, we see that pain comes in all kinds of packages. There's the pain of disappointment. I mean, who among us have not been disappointed? Disappointed in ourselves, disappointed in somebody else. There's unmet expectations. You thought it was gonna be this way and it turned out that way. You, you had it all built up in your mind and you had the end of the story already scripted, but yet it turned out to be something totally different. There's the ache of personal failure, of knowing that you screwed up and you can't take it back and you can't redo it and you can't undo it. There's the pain that comes along with being successful and you gave your life to it. You gave your energy to it. And then when you got everything you thought you ever wanted, it was empty and it was painful. There's the pain of rejection. Somebody said no, somebody walked away. There's the pain that comes from watching someone you love be in pain. There's the sting of broken friendships. They just decided you weren't friends anymore. They just decided, hey, I, I, I just, we're not, we're not together anymore. And so they just, they split, they walked away and, and, and it hurt, it was painful. Some of you moms and dads, you know the pain that comes along with watching a son or a daughter just live their lives in the wrong direction. A prodigal son, a prodigal daughter who just lived their life and then all of a sudden they just went off the rails. There's the pain that comes along with childhood abuse. And some of you know that. There's some chapters in your life you'll never forget and there's some chapters in your life you've never talked about and you carry that pain and you carry that weight with you. There's, there's the pain of insecurity and the wounds of betrayal and then there's the pain of death, of standing over the casket of someone you love and you have to say goodbye. And it just goes on and on and on and on because pain comes in all kinds of packages and life is painful. And so that's true. We don't want it to be true. And we're a little bit surprised every time it proves to be true in our own lives. But let me give us something else that's true. Something that we know is true, something that we're glad is true, but sometimes we struggle living as though it's true, especially when we are experiencing pain. And here's the truth, life is beautiful. Life is beautiful. I mean, you woke up this morning, I woke up this morning and I walked outside before I left home and there was just almost like a, a whispering kiss of a promise of fall. I mean, it was so nice and cool and crisp. And I was like, I love this. This is incredible. This, this is wonderful. And, and, and it's life. I mean, life is beautiful. And it's, it, sometimes it's a big beautiful and sometimes it's a small beautiful, but there's laughter and there's love and there's joy and there's smiles. There's new experiences with old friends. I mean, how cool is that? When you get to do something brand new with a set of friends who are tried, tested, and you just, you go and you enjoy life and there's good food and there's good times. There's the face and the voice of the people that we love. I mean, life is beautiful. Now, you parents know this, there's the cry of the newborn baby. I mean, it's beautiful, it's wonderful. There's the smile of your son or your daughter. 
There's the, you know, the, the kindness of a stranger. There's acts of courage that we see all the time around us. We hear about, we read about, we see on the news. Uh, there's small things like the, you know, the uh, smell of fresh cut grass. I mean, I love fresh cut grass. I don't like cutting that fresh cut grass, but I love to smell it and it's wonderful. There's the sound of an evening thunderstorm. There's the sound of waves crashing against the shore. There's the wonder of looking up in the sky and and looking at light that is trillions of miles away. I I love, I get great joy out of seeing the giftedness and the genius of other people. I I think that's why I've always loved the arts. I I, I love people who can create and paint. And and I love people who can tell stories through literature or cinema or, or through, you know, the performing arts. And just to see the genius and the giftedness of people to be able to create I mean, it's, it's beautiful to watch, to see an act of selflessness, to see an act of generosity, to hear someone speak words of gratitude or see someone forgive someone. It just goes on and on and on because life is beautiful. And it reminds us that life is painful and life is beautiful all at the same time. They're both true, but they can also be simultaneously true. Life can be painful and life can be beautiful all at the same time. And we see this every time that we happen to see a tragedy. I can't help but think of 9-11. And on 9-11, there was a lot of evil. There was a lot of suffering. There was a lot of death. There was a lot of pain. But in the midst of all that painfulness, there was something beautiful in watching those first responders charge into buildings at risk of their own lives, putting their own lives on the line, seeing people come together in solidarity and doing what's good and doing what's right for the benefit of other people. That out of tragedy, the pain of tragedy often arises something beautiful. And and we see this all the time. We see this when someone does something wrong against someone that instead of being offended by it for life, instead of holding a grudge, they decide that they're gonna offer forgiveness. There's something painful, but yet there's something beautiful in it at the same time when you see someone offer forgiveness. You see this when there's the pain of a setback that becomes the beauty of a comeback. There's, There's the pain of a loved one that dies, but then you see the family and too often families, they fight with each other after the father or the mom dies and steps off the scene. But, but when you see families rally together and come together and love one another and support one another and pick up the broken, broken pieces together and walk forward together, it's something beautiful. Childbirth, ladies, you know this. It's painful. I've heard this. It's painful. I've been told. Painful. But yet it's beautiful. Life is painful and life is beautiful all at the same time. Feeling pain, however, comes easy. Experiencing pain comes easy. But finding what's beautiful in the midst of your pain, that's a bit more challenging. But it was the Apostle Paul who kind of nods in this direction to kind of give us a hint of how we can find what's beautiful in the midst of what's painful. He says this in verses you've heard before, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. And in these words, Paul was saying, not everything in life will always be good. Not everything in your life will always look good, feel good, or sound good. There's going to be some pain. There's going to be some ugliness. But your heavenly father has made a promise that in the midst of the painful, he can also bring out something that is beautiful. That in the midst of what is bad, that your heavenly father and my heavenly father, he has promised that he is able to step into the bad and he is able to turn the bad into good. That even in the midst of the bad and the pain, there is good and there is beauty. And so Paul, he kind of hints towards this because life is full spectrum. There's good and there's bad and there's painful and there's beautiful. And this is exactly what we see happening every single day in the world that we live in because it's real life. And if the Bible is true, if the scriptures are true, we should expect to see the same thing as we read through the scripture. And that's exactly what we find. All throughout the scripture, we find both what is painful and what is beautiful. And when it comes to pain, the Bible, it doesn't hold any punches. Last week, we talked about Adam and Eve and after they rebelled against God and rejected God's way, We talked about how sin, sorrow, and death entered into the world and on the hills of sin, sorrow, and death came pain. And after Genesis three, there's pain on every page of the scripture, but there's also beauty on every page of the scripture as well. 
And in the midst of what is painful because of the sin in the world and because of the painful that's connected to the sin and the sorrow and death that's in the world, but yet on every page, in every generation, in every epoch of time, we find God wading into the bad and turning it for good. We find God painting something beautiful, scripting something beautiful, that God is there in it. He is up to something. And we see that in the midst of all the craziness that is real life, God, he does not ignore the painful, but yet in the midst of the painful, he brings about something that is beautiful. And so today I wanted to tell a story because that's what this series is all about. We're going back and we're looking at some of these Old Testament stories that many of us were told since childhood, but we were only told them as you would expect children to be told these stories. And we're talking about the adult version of these stories, but, but a story that captures both pain and beauty. I think it's the story of the scripture. I think it's the story of your life. It's the story of my life. It's the story of this planet. And it's all found in one particular person in the book of Genesis. And it's the story of Joseph. It's a story of pain and it's a story of beauty. And when it comes to the story of Joseph, here's some things we need to know. And this is on the heels of last week. We talked about how Moses wrote the book of Genesis. And to understand the point of Genesis, you gotta understand who wrote it and why they wrote it and when they wrote it and to whom they were writing it and the, you know, the purpose that they wanted to accomplish. Moses is writing this to the nation of Israel. He's writing this for Israel. And so he's going back and he's reminding them of their history so that he can reinstill hope for their future. And so he goes back and he tells the story of Joseph, which starts around Genesis 37 and goes all the way through Genesis 50. And what's interesting is Moses spends more time telling the story of Joseph than he does telling the story of Adam or Noah or Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. So there's something really important that Moses wanted Israel to get in this story of Joseph. There's something really important that God wants us all to get and to understand and to see in this story of the life of Joseph. And so there's so much space given to this one man's story because this one man's story is really the story of Israel. It's the story of everyone on this planet. It's the story of pain and it's the story of beauty. And so let me just start at the very beginning. Uh, Joseph's great grandfather was Abraham. And God had given Abraham a promise that one day he was gonna have a son and it was gonna become a family and become a nation and become a kingdom. And out of that family and kingdom, there was gonna be a Messiah, a savior, it was gonna be born, it was gonna bless the entire world. That's what you've gotta understand about the Old Testament because that's the story that the Old Testament is telling. The story, the promise of God to Abraham and the story of God keeping that promise to Abraham. Abraham's son, Isaac, would be the carrier of that promise. And then after Isaac, Jacob would be the carrier of that promise. Jacob had 12 sons. Those 12 sons would become the 12 tribes of Israel. And among one of those sons was Joseph. Now, this family of Joseph and Jacob, this family of Isaac and Abraham, they were dysfunctional to say the very least. And if any of you have ever grown up in a dysfunctional family, you know that family dysfunction is painful. Family dysfunction is painful. And there was a lot of dysfunction in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's family. There was a lot of family dysfunction in Joseph's home. There was a lot of hurt. There was a lot of dishonesty. There was a lot of insecurity. There was a lot of paranoia, a lot of jealousy, a lot of hatred, a lot of unforgiveness, a lot of generational junk in that family. And just FYI, this is a bit encouraging because these are our heroes of faith. These are our heroes. And the Bible gives it to us, the good and the bad and the ugly, the painful and the beautiful. And so Jacob has his favorite son, which is Joseph. And Joseph is part of this dysfunctional culture in this family. So dysfunctional that one of Jacob's brothers had a sexual relationship with one of his father Jacob's wives. Now talking about making things tense at the Thanksgiving table, When you've got one son sleeping with his father's wife, you've got Levi and Simeon, two of Joseph's brothers who basically killed an entire village because of the sexual assault against their sister Dinah. Joseph had three stepmothers. Some of you can barely hold one under. (laughs) It's like you're you're barely getting there with one. Three stepmothers, 10 stepbrothers, 
one stepsister. But here's the kicker. You think you got it bad? All under the same roof. So I said it was dysfunctional. So Joseph was the favorite son of Jacob by his favorite wife. And there's a lesson, men, here in the very beginning. Thou shalt not have a favorite son or a favorite wife, lest all hell break loose in your life. <laughs> Words of wisdom. If that's the only thing you take away today, that might be the only thing you need. Don't ever have a favorite son and don't ever have a favorite wife. It does not go well for that man. But in Sunday school, we weren't told all about this dysfunction and we weren't told about Jacob and all of his wives and we weren't told about all the stuff going on under that roof because I mean, how could we have been told that as children? We weren't ready for that. But in Sunday school, we were told about Joseph getting a gift from his father, that coat of many colors. And it was long sleeve. When all of his brothers, you know, they wore tunics that were short, you know, short sleeve because they were expected to work out in the field. But Jacob gave Joseph a long sleeve because he wasn't expected to work like his other brothers. He was a bit coddled and a bit pampered and a bit sheltered and a bit spoiled. Some of you, you know exactly what I'm talking about because you have a younger brother or younger sister that that's exactly how your parents treated them. You had chores, you got a job, you had to pay for the gas, you had to buy the insurance, you had to buy the car. But when your brother or sister came along, it's like your parents forgot all about what they made you do. And then they just made it super easy on your little brother or sister. Well, that's kind of how it was in that particular family. And if you've ever read any Jordan Peterson's material, Jacob is breaking one of Jordan Peterson's rule for, rules for life when he says that don't raise your kids to be someone that somebody else dislikes. Don't raise your kid to be someone else that other people don't like. So Jacob was not doing his son any favors at all by giving him such favoritism, by, by giving him such preferential treatment. But this is where we pick up the story. Joseph, the favored son of his father, Jacob. It says, now Israel, Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in old age and he made an ornate robe for him. So he's 17 years old at this particular time. And on occasion, Jacob would send Joseph out to the fields to check on the brothers to see how well they were working. Well, in Genesis 37, Joseph comes back and tells Jacob, well, I went out and checked on my brother's dad and I just want you to know, those guys still don't know how to work. They don't know how to do anything right. They don't know how to do anything you've asked them to do the right way. And so he would just come back and he would just give bad reports about his brothers. Well, you can understand how well that went over. So it says, when his brothers saw, because it's always evident, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So again, imagine all the tension that existed in this family. Imagine all the words that were spoken, shouted, whispered, all the insults, all the looks, all the tone, all the coldness of that family. This was not a happy home. This was a family of faith, but it was not a happy home. This is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but it was not a happy home. So you remember the story, Joseph has a dream, and I'm not gonna take time to tell you the dream, but in the dream, basically, his brothers got the gist of what Joseph's dream meant. And they said, are you telling us that eventually we're gonna bow down and serve you, brother? And Joseph, I imagine, kind of had a smile on his face. Well, you know, it's kind of the dream, and Joseph's dream was, you know, we're out there working together in the field, and that's the only time Joseph ever worked in the field was in his dreams. And he was like, hey, we were out in the field working, and my wheat stood up taller than your wheat, and so, you know, I don't know what you think that means, but maybe that's what it means. And he said, not only that, but the sun, moon, and the stars, they bowed down to me as well. And so there's just a lot of animosity, and there's a lot of hatred, and one day, the boys, the brothers are out working. And so Joseph is sent out by his father to go check on them. And they can see Joseph coming from, from a long distance away. And the brothers, they hate Joseph so much, they think to themselves and say to themselves, let's just kill him. Just kill him. Now that's jacked up. That's, that's messed up, but this is real life. We hear stories like this all the time. Of things so horribly wrong in families that it comes to physical violence, it comes to murder, it, it comes to bloodshed. And, and this is what the scripture gives us. It gives us real life. 
It gives us something that mirrors the existence that we know to be true around us. It's not as though we're reading something that is divorced from what we know to be real life or divorced from what we have experienced in our own lives. So they see Joseph coming and they think to themselves, let's, let's kill him. And then they start hatching a plan and they start talking to each other. So let's just kill him. And so when Joseph got there, he says, they stripped him. They stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and they threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. And it, it probably looked something like this, an old cistern, an old well. And they took Joseph by force, right? You know, they were going to kill him, but then one brother said, no, no, let's, let's not kill him. Let's just, let's just throw him down into a pit and let him just expire. Let whatever happens, happens. But let's just throw him down the pit. And so this was an act of violence. This was an act of abuse. This is everything we know it would have been and everything that we can picture. Murder is in their hearts. Hatred is in their hearts. And families are supposed to be safe places. But when families are not safe places, they become painful places. And Joseph's family was a painful place for him. As cocky as he may have been, it was a painful place. And here he is at 17 begging for his life. Injustice at its worst. The deep wounds and the deep scars of what happened that day and a pain that very few of us could imagine experiencing firsthand. And this one event could have been justification for Joseph giving up, becoming bitter, becoming cynical, just deciding he's gonna stay down there and die. This could have been the worst moment of Joseph's life for the rest of his life. So they threw him down in the pit. And we're talking about a great set of brothers. Right after they threw him down in the pit, you know, they're not sure what they're going to do yet. It says, then they sat down to eat their meal. That's, that's how little their consciences were bothered by this. They, they were going to kill him. Then they decided not to. Then they just threw him in a well and they were like, hey, anybody hungry? Let's have lunch. Let's just sit down. And then they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, and their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. And so they decided that they would just sell their brother to this traveling group of Ishmaelites, that they were going to sell their brother into slavery. So human trafficking from the very beginning. Human trafficking we hear a lot about today, and the pain of that, and the horror of that, and the injustice of that. The evil of that, and, and from the very beginning in Genesis, sin, sorrow, and death has entered the world, and we find everything going on. There's nothing new under the sun. And so his brothers sell him into slavery, this defenseless 17-year-old kid for 20 pieces of silver. And so then he goes down to Egypt, and he gets bought by one of you know, Pharaoh's chief guards, a guy by the name of Potiphar. Some of you remember this part of the story. And so he sold him to slavery, and then he's bought by another man as the personal slave of Potiphar's household. And it would be real easy for us to wonder, certainly would have been easy for Joseph to wonder, where in the world is God in all of this? A 17-year-old having to go through this, a 17-year-old having someone treat him like this, having this amount of misfortune. Where is God in all of this? This is so much pain for a 17-year-old. Where is God in all of this? And Moses knew that Israel was going to ask that question. And Moses knew that the audience who would read this would ask this question. And so Moses says, and the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with him. With him where? In the pit. With him where? In the back of that caravan of Ishmaelites heading down to Egypt. With him where? When Potiphar bought him and brought him into his house as a personal slave. He says, the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read the scripture, I'm thinking to myself, if the Lord is with you and you prosper, I don't think that we think of slavery associated with that. The Lord's with him and he's prospering, but as a slave, how is that even possible? But there in the midst of the pain, and that's what Moses is trying to make the point of, that right there in the midst of the pain, God is with Joseph. 
And God is there and God is in the shadows and God is in the corner and God is working and God is moving and he's changing bad for good. Joseph doesn't know it yet. Nobody can see it yet. Nobody feels it yet. But God is there in the midst of what is painful and God is bringing out something that's beautiful. We don't know it yet. We can't see it yet. Joseph has no idea. But the Lord is with him. I'm sure it didn't feel like God was with him. It didn't look like God was with him. But Moses said, make no mistake about it. The Lord was with Joseph. It says when his master saw that the Lord was with him, because it was evident the way that Joseph lived his life, the way that he worked, the, the, way, that, the way that he did what he was supposed to do, the way that he handled his responsibility, the Lord was obviously with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything that he did. All the while, he's still processing everything that just happened with his brothers. I mean, the guy's been kidnapped. He's been thrown into the bottom of a well. He's been sold into slavery. Now he's a slave. His whole entire status has changed. He went from being the favored son, the number one guy in the house, to being the slave of the house. And to Joseph, none of this felt fair. None of this felt deserved. None of this felt right. This was all unwanted and uninvited. But where is God in the midst of all of that? Right there with Joseph. And Joseph, we never find him resisting his circumstances. We always find him adapting to them. We never find Joseph allowing his circumstances to change what he believes about God. But yet his steadfast belief in the character of God remains the same no matter what his circumstances are. And somewhere in Joseph's heart, he is confident that God is with him. Somewhere in Joseph's heart, he is confident that God is for him. Somewhere in Joseph's faith, he believes that God is in control. And so Moses, he keeps telling this story, and, and, and Moses, he throws in some of the most interesting details. He tells us that Joseph was just one big hunk of Hebrew love. I mean, he was good-looking and well-built. He was like an Olympian. And it's almost like we can tell that Moses has taken us somewhere. And so Potiphar's wife, she's been looking at this big hunk of Hebrew love working in the house and she can't stand it no longer. And one day she just says literally in the Hebrew, sex now, sex now, not an invitation, basically an order. Hey, you sex now. Now, all that Joseph had been through I mean, you've been kidnapped, you've been beaten, you've been left for dead, you've been sold into slavery, you've been working as a slave. Everything you once knew, it seems gone forever. I think it would have been real easy for Joseph to talk himself into it. <laughs> this is the first thing that's gone your way in a long time. I guess the Lord is with me. This seems like a blessing. I mean, we, we could convince ourselves of anything. We could justify and rationalize all day long, and I'm sure Joseph could have as well. But even though he's been done so wrong, and even though his life has been so painful, he refuses to give up his faith in God. And you know what he does? He says, no, and he runs away. He says, how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? The same God that allowed him to be attacked by his brothers, the same God that allowed him to be thrown to the bottom of a well, the same God that allowed him to be sold to the Ishmaelites and the same God that allowed him to be sold to Potiphar. I don't care what God has allowed to happen. I am not going to sin against him because somewhere there was a faith that ran deep in Joseph's heart. Somewhere there was an unshakable confidence that God was in control that God could be trusted to be in control. And so Potiphar's wife accused him of rape. And he says, Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in prison, and before we go on, I just want you to understand, some of us grew up with a version of Christianity. We thought if we did the right thing, good things followed. Joseph just did the right thing and he got prison for it. He lost some freedom because of it. He did what was good and he did what was right and it didn't seemingly work out good or right for him in the moment. 
So doing good and right didn't seem to immediately pay off for Joseph and he's there in prison, but Moses says, make no mistake about it. The Lord was with him there in prison and he showed him kindness. What kind of kindness you're talking about, Moses? Kindness that lets you be thrown in a pit, kindness sold into slavery, kindness to be wrongfully incarcerated, falsely accused, that's kindness. But the Lord showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. Listen, I thought when God was on your side, you had lots of friends, all save one, the prison warden. It's like, you don't even know who the prison warden is. Why would you? God's on your side, God's with you. The last place you're gonna be is prison, but Joseph's best buddy becomes the prison warden because the Lord was with him. And Moses says, make no mistake about it. Right there in the midst of what was painful, God was there. And so time goes by, perhaps years. And there was a baker and a cupbearer that got on the wrong side of Pharaoh and he threw him into prison. And then as time went on, maybe a couple of years, they had a dream. And they said, we have this dream, but we have no idea what it means. And then Joseph interprets their dream. He listens to the cupbearer and he tells the cupbearer, okay, I know what that dream means. It means in three days, you're gonna get out of here. He looks at the baker, <laughs> he says, I know what your dream means too. In three days, you're out of here too, but in a different way. You're, you're gonna lose your head and the birds are gonna feed off your flesh. The guy's like, thanks. And so he interprets their dream and just like Joseph said, the cupbearer gets out. And before the cupbearer leaves prison, Joseph has a request for him and he says, hey, when all things go well with you and you get up back up there, Pharaoh, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. And for the first time we figure out how Joseph thinks about all of this. He says, I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews and even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in dungeon, in the dungeon. So let me, get, let me just point this out real quick because I'm, I'm wrapping it up. Joseph isn't in denial. He's not got his head in the clouds. He's not oblivious. He's not got his head stuck in the sand. He's not checked out of reality. He knows what's happened. He feels the pain of what's happened. He's not fighting against what he can't change. He's deciding to place his confidence in the one who is rather in control of what he can't change, his heavenly father. And then Moses says, the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph and he forgot him. Two more years go by. We're 13 years into the story. And Joseph decides not to become bitter and not to become cynical. He decides to place his unshakable confidence in the fact that God was in control and could be trusted to be in control. Pharaoh has a dream. No one can interpret it. The cupbearer one day thinks, ah, I should tell him about Joseph who interpreted my dream. And so he told Pharaoh and Pharaoh said, bring him to me. And so they cleaned up Joseph, they shaved him, they bathed him, they brought him in. And Pharaoh said, can you interpret my dream? And listen to what Joseph said. He said, I cannot do it, but God, and he still believes. Even in the midst of all the painful, he still believes. He still has his confidence that God can, that God is up to something, that God is in control. And so he tells Pharaoh what his dream means. He said, there's gonna be seven good years, seven bad years. So use the seven good years to get ready for the seven bad years. And in all, Joseph saves Egypt. And not only that, we're 22 years into the story at this point. Joseph's nearly 40 years old. Joseph saves the day he gets promoted to second in command in all of Egypt, the prime minister of Egypt. The famine reaches all the way up in Canaan. Jacob sends his, brother, his sons down to get grain because he hears Egypt has grain because of some genius down there who saved the day. And a wonderful elaborate story. That's not the story I'm gonna tell today. Eventually Joseph's family comes to Egypt and Joseph reveals himself to his brothers and he forgives them. He forgives them. He gives them grace and he tells them what his faith has been all along. He told those brothers that day, as for you, you meant it evil against me, but God meant it for good. 
to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. He said, in the midst of all the pain, God was bringing something beautiful out of it. In the midst of all the injustice and confusion and betrayal, it felt out of my control, but I had confidence that it was in God's control. And here was Joseph's faith. This was his faith. And I hope it's mine and I hope it's yours. He believed that God is good, that he's with me, he's for me, and he's in control. And because he believed that, he could say, I'm going to be okay, no matter what. This is what he believed. He believed that God was good, that he was with him, that he was in control, that he could be trusted. And because of all of that, he could say, I believe I'm going to be okay, no matter what. And when we believe that, we can face unthinkable things. When we believe that, we can face unbearable things. When we believe that God is there with us and God is there for us, and that we believe that God is good and that he's in control, when we believe that, we can walk through anything because we believe that out of the painfulness of life, God can bring something beautiful out of it, that God can take something that is bad and he can turn it for good. And when we see this type of faith, we want it. And when we see that type of faith, we crave it. We see this type of faith in Joseph. But recently, the whole world has been introduced to this kind of faith in a young woman who's just a little over 30 years old, who is reminding the world that life is painful and life is beautiful all at the same time. I'm so happy to be here. Well, we're happy you are. What's your name? My name's Jane. When I sing, I go by Nightbird. Oh, that's nice. Nightbird? That's right. Uh, did you sing, do you sing for a living? Um, not, not recently. Where are you from? I'm from Zanesville, Ohio. Okay, how old are you? I'm 30. 30 years old, and the dream is to be a singer. What are you gonna be singing for us tonight? I'm singing an original song called It's Okay. It's Okay? Yeah. It is. It's okay. okay. It's okay. What is It's Okay about? Uh, it's Okay is the story of the last year of my life. All right. And who are you here with? I'm here by myself. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what do you do for a living? Um, I have not been working for quite a few years. I've been dealing with cancer. Oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> no, it's okay. Okay. Yeah, I'm okay. All right. Can, can I ask you a question? How are you now? Uh, last time I checked, I had some cancer in my lungs, my spine, and my liver. Wow. So you're not okay? Uh, well, not in every way, no. You got a beautiful smile and a beautiful glow, mm -hmm. and nobody would know. Thank you. It's important that uh, everyone knows I'm so much more than the bad things that yes. happen to me. Yes. All right. Sing for us. Good luck. Nightbird. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. 
I wrote a hundred pages, but I burned them all. Yeah, I burned them all. I blow through yellow lights and don't look back at all. Because singers come on, and, and I and I think about authenticity. You know, when you feel it, when it moves you, that felt like the most authentic thing I have heard this season. That was surprising to you. It was powerful. It was heartfelt, and I think you're amazing. You gave me chills. I mean, your voice is so beautiful to listen to. It was beautiful all the way around. Your voice is stunning. Mm -hmm. Absolutely stunning. And I, I totally agree with what Howie said, you know, about authenticity. There was something about that song after the way you just almost casually told us what you're going through and, oh, you know. You can't wait until life isn't hard anymore before you decide to be happy. There are, however, there have been some great singers this year. Um, and I'm not going to give you a yes. I'm going to give you something else. is not zero percent two percent is something and i wish people knew how amazing it is you blew us all away <laughs> you are the voice we all need to hear this year that was way more than okay that was beautiful that was beautiful god that really got to me it pushes all the heartstring oh. buttons right and yet she's still so strong Life is painful and life is beautiful all at the same time. And when we see it, we're drawn to it. We're attracted to it. We're captivated by it. We get fixated on it. I know many of you have already seen that, but I wanted to show it again because since then, millions upon millions and millions of people are talking about this. Everywhere from CNN to print media, Jane was a worship leader before she got so sick. And the whole world is so curious, how can you say you're okay when things aren't okay? 
And the world is wondering, is it really true that we are more than the bad things that have happened to us? And where does hope like that come from? And where does a perspective like that come from? It comes from being confident that God is with you. That whatever you're going through, wherever you are, whatever you're facing, that he's there. Her writing is prolific. And I'm gonna let her close the sermon today. I don't want you to hear what she has said about her journey. She said, a line from my favorite poem says this. There'll be days like this, my mama said, when you open your hands to catch and wind up with only blisters and bruises, when your boots fill with rain and you'll be up to your knees in disappointment. And those are the very days you have all the more reason to say thank you because there's nothing more beautiful than the way the ocean refuses to stop kissing the shoreline no, ha- no matter how many times it is sent away. I haven't come as far as I'd like in understanding the things that have happened this year, but here's one thing I do know. When it comes to pain, God isn't often in the business of taking it away. Instead, he adds to it. He is more of a giver than a taker. He doesn't take away my darkness, he adds light. He doesn't spare me of thirst, he brings me water. He doesn't cure my loneliness, he comes near. So why do we believe that when we are in pain, it must mean God is far? In the beginning, there was immense immeasurable emptiness, but God was drawn to it like a fog to the sea. He stretched out his spirit over the void and he stayed. If the stories I've heard of him are true, surely he is nearest of all to me, to us. You see, the creator is still here where he has always been. Hovering over the emptiness, I'm still reeling, drenched in sorrow, and I'm still begging, bargaining, demanding, disappearing. And I guess that means I have all the more reason to say thank you because God is drawing near to me again, 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 no matter how many times he has sent away. After the doctor told me I was dying and after the man I married said that he didn't love me anymore, I chased a miracle in California and 16 weeks later I got it, the cancer was gone, but when my brain caught up with it all, something broke. I later found out that all the tragedy at once had caused a physical head trauma and my brain was sending false signals of excruciating pain and panic. I spent three months propped against the wall. On nights that I could not sleep, I laid in the tub like an insect, staring at my reflection in the shower knob. I vomited until I was hollow. I rolled up under my robe on the towel. The bathroom floor became my place to hide, where I could scream and be ugly, where I could sob and spit and eventually doze off, happily to be asleep, even with my head on the toilet. I've had cancer three times now, and I've barely passed 30. There are times when I wonder what I must have done to deserve such a story. I fear sometimes that when I die and meet with God, he will say, I am disappointing him, or that I offended him or failed him. Maybe he'll say that I just never learned the lesson or I wasn't grateful enough. But one thing I know for sure, he can never say that he did not know me. I am God's downstairs neighbor, banging on the ceiling with a broomstick. I show up at his door every day, sometimes with songs, sometimes with curses, sometimes apologies, gifts, questions, demands. Sometimes I use my key under the mat to let myself in. Other times I sulk outside until he opens the door to me himself. I have called him a cheat and a liar, and I meant it. I have told him I wanted to die, and I meant it. Tears have become the only prayer I know. Prayers roll over my nostrils and drip down my forearms. They fall to the ground as I reach for him. These are the prayers I repeat night and day, sunrise and sunset. Call me bitter if you want to, that's fair. Count me among the angry, the cynical, the offended, the hardened, but count me also among the friends of God, for I've seen him in rare form. I have felt his excel, laid in his shadow, squinted to read the message he wrote for me in the crowd. 
I'm sad too. If an explanation would help, he would write one, I know it, but maybe an explanation would only start an argument between us. And I don't wanna argue with God. I wanna lay in a hammock with him and trace the veins in his arm. I remind myself that I'm praying to the God who let the Israelites stay lost for decades. They begged to arrive in the promised land, but instead he let them wander, answering prayers they didn't pray. For 40 years, their shoes didn't wear out. Fire lit their path each night. Every morning he sent them mercy bread from heaven. I look hard for the answers to the prayers that I didn't pray. I look for the mercy bread that he promised to bake fresh for me each morning. The Israelites called it manna, which means what is it? That's the same question I'm asking again and again. There's mercy here somewhere, but what is it? What is it? What is it? I see mercy in the dusty sunlight that outlines the trees in my mother's crooked hands in the blanket my friend left for me, in the harmony of the wind chimes. It's not the mercy I ask for, but it is mercy nonetheless. And I learn a new prayer, thank you. It's a prayer I don't mean yet, but I will repeat it until I do. Call me cursed, call me lost, call me scorned, but that's not all, call me chosen, blessed, sought after. Call me the one that God whispers his secrets to. I am the one whose belly is filled with loaves of mercy that were hidden for me. And even on days when I'm so sick, sometimes I go and lay down on the mat in the afternoon light to listen for him. I know it sounds crazy, I can't really explain it, but God is in there even now. I've heard, I've heard it said that some people can't see God because they won't look low enough, and it's true. Look lower. God is on the bathroom floor. Maybe we missed it. What God showed us when he first introduced himself, that he will crawl into the dirt to be near us. And he will fill our lungs with air when we don't know how to breathe. When we see faith like that, we hear faith like that, we know we want faith like that. Faith that says God is good, he's with me. He's for me, he's in control. And that means I'm gonna be okay, no matter what, because we believe that one day suffering is gonna give way to glory Amen. and pain is gonna give way to purpose and ashes is gonna give way to beauty and heaviness is gonna give way to praise and anxiety is gonna give way to joy. And one day, once and for all, death will give way to life. Heavenly Father, what sin, sorrow, death, and the enemy means for evil. You're gonna use it for good. In my life, in our lives, and right there in the midst of the painful, you're creating something that's beautiful. That was the faith of Joseph. That's the faith of Jane. I pray that it will be the faith of Trevor. And I pray it will be the faith of all of us to know that you are with us right there in the darkness, in the storm, the sickness, the sorrow. You're with us and you're for us. You are good and you are in control. And we can say, with utter confidence, we are going to be okay. In Jesus' name, let it be. And everybody said.